The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Destination Germany. It's a urology special with some teams finding it hard to go and France taking the pee from Gibraltar. We round out the big stories and ask, will Wales be Thanksgiving with Turkey this week? Plus, there's the week's other big news. The Premier League getting tough on the toffees with that 10-point penalty. We'll look at that and hear about Qatar one year on and more in this Totally Football Show. Monday 20th of November, listener, welcome to your very own uh, Totally Football Show. Today with Charlie Akusher. Hello. Here in the studio and on our big screen, Daniel Story. Yes, staring over you like a benevolent Sauron's eye. Yeah, if Sauron was wearing an accidental goatee. Yeah, I had a, an electric shaver fail this morning. Oh, um, we've all been there. I'm sure there's YouTube mm. compilations of, of the same. Yeah, yeah. When you go over the whole head like I do. Actually, I was going to say you could end up with 50-50, but I'm kidding myself. There's no way I could go <laughs> 50-50 or anything. Yeah. Uh, exciting. You've had a busy few days. We'll be hearing about that, Daniel. You've been as far afield as... Uh, well, the other side of the Trent and also uh, Sweden. I should mention that among the many big bits of news uh, of the last few days, the Everton points penalty, and also Totally Football Show winning the Football Content Awards 2023 for Best Podcast International. I think for the quality of our international football coverage. So mm. Euro 24 qualifiers, probably the last that October yeah, break that that nailed it for us. <laughs> That's what's yeah. yeah, a lot of pressure today to maintain that level. I'm pretty confident, Charlie. So am I. Pretty confident. Uh, I know we've been all over all the weekend's matches, and uh, I tell you what, let's begin then with a quick roundup of where we are at in Euro qualifying. Since our last podcast on Thursday, eight more teams have qualified for next summer in Germany. Welcome to Hungary, Serbia, Slovakia, Albania, Denmark, the Netherlands, Switzerland and Romania. Four automatic places are still up for grabs, three of which are going to be decided on Monday night when the Czech Republic face Moldova. The Czechs just need a point. Moldova, meanwhile, bidding to reach their first ever major tournament. When Slovenia face Kazakhstan. Slovenia just need a point. The Kazakhs also looking to reach their first ever tournament. And Ukraine take on Italy. Missouri have actually been to a major tournament before, kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and they just need a draw to make this one after they smashed North Macedonia 5-2. Uh, on Friday, Ukraine, the hosts, although it's in Leverkusen, must win. And then on Tuesday, Wales' fate will be decided. It's no longer in their own hands after their disappointing 1-1 draw away in Armenia because Croatia on Saturday won 2-0 in Latvia. So if they win at home to Armenia, they're there no matter what Wales do with Turkey on Tuesday. Wales against Turkey. Turkey fresh from a... Win at Germany. Win well, yeah. Germany. Interesting. Interesting. And under Vincenzo Montella, they've come alive. Did you watch I mean, maybe the highlights? Kai Havertz scoring a goal. Yeah. I mean, Kai Havertz playing at left back. Yeah. And scoring a goal, popping up in a centre forward position, scoring with his right foot. Yeah. As a left back. Very Kai Havertz. And conceding a penalty with his left hand. Sure. That's, that's where he goes yet. Uh, did you see any of these goals, Daniel? No, sir. All right. If you Sorry. if you seek them out, I I mean the first two Turkish goals are pretty special. 
Aktokoglu, uh, who equalised after Kai Havertz opened the scoring, and then Yildiz. Aktokoglu, basically a wonderful... When somebody takes the ball down on a long hoof up field and then just with one foot and then slams it in with the other, then Yildiz is a lovely curling shot. Anyway, they look fabulous, uh, Turkey. We've mentioned them as potential uh, forces in Germany next summer. There wasn't that uh, thing at the last Euros that they were everyone's dark horses and then imploded and fell quite spectacularly. That but may- then, I guess, you know, yep. <laughs> maybe they'll put that to bed. Maybe this time. Vincenzo Montella. Anyway, uh, Wales are going to be facing them on Tuesday. And Daniel, you're grimacing already, probably uh, after the position that Wales, after doing all the hard work with Croatia, have now put themselves in. Yeah, they've taken one point from those two Armenia games. It's quite a strange group, that one, um, with Turkey overperforming, Croatia underperforming, but not by enough that I think they'll probably still qualify. It, it, it was a very difficult group for Wales particularly with the kind of, you know, the changing of the guard with Bale and Ramsey, etc. But, yeah, they've just let themselves down in those those two games against Armenia, who are no, you know, are no mugs. They're improving, just as seven or eight teams or seven or eight countries on that side of Europe seem to be doing now. They are, they are improving quickly, but, yeah, that's a really poor performance. And I think probably the end of Rob Page as well as manager. Right. Okay. Uh, they stuck with him after the World Cup um, because they wanted to see him to see through this changing of the guard but the reaction on at the weekend on Saturday was really really you know pretty angry from fans who and I don't think it was over expectation for them to expect to get the job done having done really well to beat Croatia yeah indeed so all right we'll see what happens with that on Tuesday Wales do still have the uh, playoff route uh, Monday meanwhile as I mentioned before a bunch of other teams seeing if they've already qualified uh, Italy will be away in Leverkusen against Ukraine they also still have that playoff route um not sure how much it's worth us going into what happened with them, given a lot of people will be hearing this after the mm. the Ukraine game has happened. But but given that the concerns are about them scoring goals, well, that's, that's pretty telling, isn't it? It was a, a huge uh, 5-2 win for them. I mean, they did have under Mancini a year ago a 4-0 win over Malta, but uh, this felt like a, a real release, the first real Spallettian mm. Performance of this as you resided. I don't think it's coincidence that when uh, Federico Chiesa's back fit mm. and when he's stuck out on the wing with a proper centre forward and it all comes together really nicely. Barella played really well as well. Uh, Di Marco looked fabulous. Yeah, they just looked great. I mean, it would be, it was, he was such a star, obviously, of the last Euros Chiesa. Mm. It, would be, it would be a shame if he weren't there uh, this time around. Certainly would. Certainly would. Oh, also, Jorginho trying his penalty again much like someone who's got a party trick that was successful back in the 90s and insists <laughs> on doing it every time there's a get-together. Yeah, it is amazing how he it doesn't seem to phase him. He just keeps Four penalties in a row that he's missed now for Italy doing that. Is that and including the shootout? Inclu- the shootout okay, okay, that one didn't matter, but it could have. Well, it did and at then the time. The, the, two, uh, the two that he missed against Switzerland, one in the same stadium, actually, uh, in, at the Stadio Olimpico in the World Cup qualifying that effectively cost Italy their place in Qatar... Mm. And then there he was. And as soon as you saw him stepping up with his little hop, you kind of knew. Yeah. And it was a terrible shot. Uh, bizarrely, afterwards, Spalletti was, of course, asked about this. And he said, no, he will be taking our next penalty. I've told him that. And he said, he's, yes, he's going to. And there was such and we'll a... be doing the exact same thing. <laughs> well, there's been a bit of a reaction. And I think uh, that quietly, privately, that it yeah. will be Chiesa or one of the other people who actually scores goals for a living who, who will, be, um, will be taking care of that if that happens in Leverkusen. Otherwise, very nervous moments should they get awarded a spot. The, there's that bit in Blackadder, I think, where General Melchit talks about how 
if we do the same thing we've done mm. every time mm. for the last 20 attempts, that's the last thing they'll be expecting. Mm. So that might be a little bit of Jorginho's logic. Surely no one's going to, I'm not going to do this five times in a row, am I? Well, maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, Daniel, you watched Romelu Lukaku scoring four goals in a half with clinical finishing. Mangala Lukaku, and up to 83 international goals, which is an awful lot at the age of 30. Uh, puts him joint seventh in the history of football, international football. Really? Uh, yeah, he's got so he, two more, I think, and he goes into sixth by himself ahead of Ferent Pushkas. And the, the remarkable thing, I, I know that the globalisation of kind of qualifying means that uh, there are more games against weaker teams, that's undoubted. But he's scoring goals. He scored his 83 goals in 113 caps. It's a better goal per game ratio than Messi and Ronaldo, who are the two kind of big names above him in terms of international goals. I mean, Messi um, famously never never performed for Argentina for years and years and years, so maybe that's something. And that has is. 108, I think. Um, <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo has 128 in 205. And yeah, I mean, he scored 11 at major tournaments. He... he he went missing in that World Cup game when he was half fit and missed the first chance and then missed all the others. And and that, sadly, will come to define part of Lukaku's legacy always. But 83 goals and 113 cats by the age of 30 is mad. It is amazing, but it kind of stands to reason because I remember Lukaku, when he played in England, the criticism is often that he couldn't do it against the stronger teams. Certainly when he went to United, there was this stat that he would he didn't score against big six teams for for a long time. So given the standard certainly in these qualifiers, is probably going to be towards that lower end, it would make sense. I mean, he's always been someone who has been very reliable to score a lot of goals. It's just whether he's scoring them necessarily at the right time. And I guess that World Cup example again plays into that. Yeah, although there was that that fitness question there, I guess. Uh, What about England beating Malta by two goals to nil? Charlie, you were mentioning that that you saw 20 minutes of highlights this, and you're wondering how did they get 20 minutes. And I'm guessing, was it because they took it until about four minutes in and then got the last 16 minutes? It probably was overwhelmingly weighted towards that period. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I find it very hard to get too wound up about a dead rubber in qualifying that England have cruised through and a lot of countries haven't. How they do in this game ultimately will bear so little, will have so little relevance on how they do next summer. Uh, you know, and he was able to give some fringe players minutes. Maybe, maybe mm. some would have wanted a more experimental side, but yeah, it's not really how Southgate operates. All right, you got me pumped for North Macedonia this evening. The big one. Yeah, I mean, the main intrigue, I think, with that is the pitch that apparently uh, is a little bit dodgy. I, think, I believe when Italy played there, Immobile was talking about how dangerous it was. Mm. So that will add uh, an edge. I think suddenly some fans who had no interest in this game... Suddenly then when they think their club players might be picking up injuries and will just be praying that they don't start. Mm. Daniel, England. Yeah, it was a a desperately dull match. I think we also have to remember, Southgate was pretty frustrated after the game. He kind of said, I need more from players than that. And I can see why he's annoyed. But ultimately, players are are being flogged, are knackered. Uh, I think there was a, a stat. BBC Sport did some analysis and I think 96% increase in hamstring injuries in the Premier League this season. And I think players, whether it's subconscious or or half deliberate, see a game Malta at home and think, I, 
I can't really afford to give my all because I've, I've got Premier League and then next week is Champions League and Europa League again and then we hit the December rush and I just think this was one international break game too many and as Charlie said it was also a dead rubber which legitimises their thoughts if it had been Italy at home and England had lost 3-0 which they would have done if they'd have played like that then there would have been different questions to answer as it is they can afford to go at third pace against Malta and still win reasonably comfortably. That hamstring analysis that you read, was that the one that suggested that it might be VAR's fault? Because you're getting these kind of three, four, five minute interruptions where players are effectively stocked still. Well, there was a theory going around when Mickey van der Ven got injured quite soon after the long, long VAR delay in the um, Spurs-Chelsea game a couple of weeks ago. And and Postecoglou was asked about it, and he said, "Yeah, absolutely. There's a chance that there. You know, he said, I'm not. I can't draw a direct line between mm. those two things. But of course, that that could increase the risk. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder as well. And this was very much like, you know, school PE. But I was always taught if you do things half-heartedly, you're always more likely to get injured. Is that right, Charlie? So I was told. No idea if that stands up to scrutiny now. I but I don't know that that's. But it makes me nervous if I if players are yeah. sort of subconsciously trying to hold themselves back right for for these games." whether that might on some level make them more vulnerable okay but i do i am really curious generally as to whether players do this i mean saka is someone who you know takes a load of kicks and people say that what he does he does sort of conserve energy for periods of games Mm. he'll sort of just coast along Mm. which is quite an interesting idea and there there are probably quite a lot of players who do that as well and as daniel says it's even more necessary this time and they're getting so overloaded that you're going to see players doing that yeah all right. Any lessons from your PE, Daniel, that might be relevant to this? Not that I want to repeat here. <laughs> okay. All right. I see. All right. Well, in terms of European footballing powers taking on British Mediterranean outposts, far more interesting was France's clash with Gibraltar. Finally, someone scores big in the half time and then goes for it in the second half, and we got double figures. Yay! Oh, yeah. Oh, Fourteen nil was the scoreline here. Uh, the game influenced, but probably not all that much by the fact that the, the third goal involved a foul on the incredible Zaire Emery, which saw uh, Gibraltar go down to ten men. But I think you know they could have had fourteen players, and it wouldn't have made that much difference against this France. Pick of the goals for you, Daniel. <laughs> I mean, I love international football, but some of the defending was absolutely... I mean, it was it was ludicrous. Okay. Um, their, their heads absolutely went down after that red card, <laughs> no doubt. When they were, they were, when they were they 13 were already, down, they knew they were beaten. They were already 3-0 down at that point. I, as I said, I, I do sort of agree. I've got a lot of time. I love it when it goes seven and then they double it and they keep going mm. afterwards. But at the time... it. it it felt quite awkward to watch right. to see Giroud coming on and scoring in like the 89th and the 92nd. Doing like, a bicycle kick for the last goal as yeah, well. Yeah, because he's got goal records to, yeah. to extend. Uh, and Mbappe with the double hat-trick, the hat-trick of goals and hat-trick of assists. Um, yeah, I mean, the phrase stat padding is, is generally kind of consigned to Twitter reply guys, um, but... <laughs> There was a lot of stat padding going on. Giroud's last goal is amazing, that vice goal. Yeah. Also, the fact that the officials only added on two minutes. like They were obviously trying to do their bit yeah. of mercy, and they still, Giroud, found time to score in stoppage time. I, I also can't think of many players more than Giroud who would just be ravenous to try and score some goals there. Like He's never been someone to 
I don't know, not just want to score whenever he possibly can and kind of do overly exuberant celebrations. Yeah. If you're asking for my favourite moment in the match, it, it, it is Kylian Mbappe playing all 90 minutes. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's the most ludicrous thing. Okay. Well, it was the biggest win that France have ever had. It's the biggest win that anyone's ever had in qualifying for a European Championship. And it featured the youngest French goal scorer since 1914 in the shape of Warren Zaire Emery. Good goal too. Uh, although I think it was in that defensive action that he, he picked up that injury, which saw him come off. Le Bleu record in Group B now reads, played 7-1-7, scored 27 and conceded 1. They've got Greece on Tuesday, which could be interesting. By the way, that wasn't the only 14-goal haul this weekend because Arsenal under-16s beat Liverpool under-16s 14-3 with, I read, the highly rated Chido Obi-Martin scoring 10 of them. Yeah, I have to say that scoreline made me sit up and take notice more. Right. Because, you, you know, France beat Gibraltar. Yeah. But also beating Liverpool, 14-3. That is, yeah, extraordinary. Right. And, and him getting, getting 10, 10 goals. A 10-goal haul. That's yeah. true. A lot of buzz you about him, Is there a lot of buzz? Yeah. What kind of buzz is there Well, about? part of it is what uh, country he chooses. Ah. Um, so he played for one of the Copenhagen clubs that was then merged um, to form FC Copenhagen, which is where Laudrup and Nicholas Bentner began their careers. Mm. So there's some pedigree. Yeah, he's, he's played for England under-16s already. He's eligible for Nigeria, both Denmark. So that's so you imagine there'll already be a bit of a tug of war going on. Crikey. Raheem Sterling, the uh, currently the leading cap holder of England players born outside of England, so he's got something to aim at. Mm. Nice. Chido Obimash. Is that how you pronounce it? I believe so. Okay. Remember the name. Remember the name. Scotland had a 3-3 duel with Norway. Yes, I watched the goals from this and quite good fun <laughs> they were too. <laughs> right. The nice. highlights of this were more yeah. enjoyable than the England ones, I will say. Yeah. Okay. And uh, anything else that you watched, Daniel? Uh, I mean, I watched England, sadly. Uh, my football was domestic-based this season. Okay. I watched Romelu Lukaku's first half, which was before going out, which was the, on Sunday evening, which was the right call. The perfect. Uh, uh, yeah, he stopped to get you I, I was ready for him to stop, which is perfect. Perfect. Very nice. We'll be hearing more about your footballing uh, journeys later on. But next up, we're going to talk about Friday's big news on Merseyside. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. Before you get back to this athletic podcast, did you know it's just one of many made by The Athletic every week? I'm Abby Patterson, senior producer here at The Athletic, and I get to work across so many of our shows. But even I have my favourites. Sometimes you're just too busy for a full-length podcast. I get it. We've all been there. Well, we've got a show to help you. Get up to speed with all the football stories you need to know about with our daily football briefing. It's done and dusted. Saudi Arabia will host the 2034 World Cup. Got a bug for the women's game? Then full-time Europe is for you. It's our dedicated women's football podcast answering the questions you're asking from the WSL and Champions League. So what's going wrong at Arsenal? But perhaps you want to know exactly how a team has set itself up. Then come to the audio whiteboard and join Michael Cox and our analytics gurus as they dissect and examine the game like nobody else can. That's on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I don't think I've ever seen a striker who reads the game so well. Just search The Athletic wherever you're listening to this podcast now and you'll find your next podcast obsession in no time at all. Now, let's get back to your show. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Bill Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Friday brought a bit of a turn up for Everton. The Toffees hit with a 10-point penalty for breaching the Premier League's profit and sustainability rules in the 2021-22 season. Pending an appeal, it drops Everton from 14th to 19th in the table, only above bottom place Burnley on goal difference. It's the biggest ever penalty handed out in the top flight for comparison. Portsmouth got nine points. That's the closest we've ever come. And that was for going into administration in 2009-10. But no one's ever got 10 before. Not in the top flight. Your reaction? Well, I was surprised that it was this severe. And I think people who... Uh, I know you know people like Matt Slater who mm. are very across this kind of world. They were surprised by the severity as well. I think the sense was that it would be, um, I don't know, that the Premier League might be talking tough, but when it came to it, they might not go quite this tough. It does seem that one of the motivations for the severity of it is the fact that it was felt that Everton weren't entirely plain in their dealings with the Premier League. Yeah, I think that's the big reason why mm. they have. I mean, and I wonder as well, you know, talk of a regulator and there are other clubs where, you know, that are being looked into whether they did want to make a, a big statement. They've certainly done that. I mean, I do feel a bit for Everton. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time that with those factors that they did want to make this statement and show that they are going to come down tough on clubs. But it does set a really interesting precedent you know, if other clubs find themselves in hot water, which they already have. Which they already have. Yeah, yeah. well, we'll come on to that in a second or two. But uh, we've just been joined by Matt Jones from the Blue Room Everton podcast. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are you? Yeah, we're, we're very well. What, what's the mood among Everton supporters? A bit of a mix, I think. Uh, initially, when this, this all came out on Friday, there was a lot of surprise. And I think as it's gone on and kind of manifested and, and settled with the fan base, I think that's kind of changed towards 
anger over the weekend for, for a lot of people. And I can only imagine that's going to build and build up to a, a crescendo on, on Sunday when 11 lads in blue walk out to, to face Manchester United. Yeah, what a fixture that's going to be. I mean, you could be out of the relegation zone again as early as Sunday if you get the result against Man United, which is uh, far from Im- impossible. And uh, the atmosphere sounds like it's going to be incredible from some of the stuff I'm reading. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's. I think as fans, it's the only thing that you know a lot of people feel they can really do at the moment. You know, as much as um, you know, people can reply to the Premier League Twitter account and, and do all those sorts of things. What we can impact is is what happens on on the football pitch. And you know, fan groups over the weekend have already set up GoFundMe's for for donations in regards to banners and stuff like that. But the last time I checked, that surpassed thirty thousand pounds, which is which is obviously going to be channeled in, in the right way. And I think yeah. Everton have got some good fixtures coming up from that sense. They've obviously got United on Sunday. They've got Newcastle and Chelsea to come after that as well. All of them are on, on broadcast slots as well. So I think there's a, a great opportunity for fans to, to send their message of what they feel as though has been a, a little bit of an overreaction from the Premier League. All right. Interesting. So, Matt, do you feel that punishment was justified for Everton's business dealings, but just not this magnitude? Yeah, and I think that that's kind of where I've I've settled. At. I think you know on, on Friday I sort of compared it to you know, to use a football example. It's the defender leaving the trailing leg out and the, the attacker going over it, and then saying, "Well, you kind of gave him the chance to, to go over there, so you you could expect the penalty when and maybe it's, it's not quite it's not quite that." Um, so yeah, I, I think Everton have obviously admitted wrongdoing, and that has been counted into their appeal. But from Everton's perspective, I think they they put forward a number of mitigating factors only one of which was was taken into consideration, and that was that the club are, are going in, in the right direction. And listen, they've been working with the Premier League for a couple of years now. They've been had every transfer deal and checked over. The Premier League have been looking over every financial decision. They've been over everything's shoulder from that point of view. So I feel, the club, feel like the club feel like they've been let down a little bit from that perspective and for the, the biggest sanction ever in the competition's history to be... Mm-hmm. To be levied at them, I feel you know I, I kind of get where the anger's coming from. All right, you, you've got two thirds of the season to go, and you have picked up ten points in your last five fixtures. So, in a sense, is this actually quite a good season for this to happen in? Say last year, it m- might have brought about an entirely different uh, result. Well, yeah, of course. In the last couple of seasons, I think you know this point deduction would have been the the final nail in the coffin for Everton from a relegation perspective. But yeah, you, you know, it, there's no good time for, for these things to come, is there? But it, it does feel like a if we're going to try and take positives from it, that this time is is ideal because I think even if this had been met out at the start of the season and everything had started on minus ten, that feels like a a long way to to mm. go. And um, certainly in terms of not knowing what we know about Burnley, uh, Luton, and Sheffield United and how they were going to struggle, um, and of course if it had come a bit later on and Everton had maybe just been playing matches to try and stay up and been looking towards that that 35 point mark then it might have been a bit too late so Everton have, have shown this season that they're, they're a good side I think they've shown that they're better than the free promoted side certainly and a couple of other teams in this league um, and it's not too late even for them to react so plenty of time for this this team to, to overcome this and, and potentially push on and, and like you said potentially get out of the relegation zone as early as next weekend but um, it's, it's going to be interesting thing to see if Everton do suffer a setback as well because I feel like this this emotion is either going to be someone that's going to persist or I can imagine it being really fragile as well. So if Everton were to, say, lose next weekend, drop five points behind teams off the relegation zone, does that indignation and anger persist over a tough Christmas period or not? Right. I mean, anger can be a positive thing, but fear, not so much. At the moment, it seems to be more anger than fear for, for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, Sitting here now, I can only speak for myself, but 
I don't feel as concerned about being relegated right now as it is at any point towards the, the end of last season at all. Um, I think Sean Dyche has, has shown that he can steadily build the team. I think these lads have shown that they've got a lot of spirit. Uh, certainly away from home, the, the record's become so much better in, in recent times. So there's reasons to be positive from a purely footballing point of view, and I think the fans will will latch onto that. I think the manager's probably ideal for the situation as well. You know, I can almost imagine what he's going to say in every press conference going forward when he's asked about this. He's going to give it a straight bat, which I think is ideal. But I imagine there'll be a bit of spite there as well. And and that, I think that's important because I think Evertonians are ready to go from this point of view. They're ready to seize that emotion. And I think if it's channeled in the right way, then Everton are going to be absolutely fine. Yeah. Sounds like Man United have got a bit of a game on the, their hands on, on Sunday. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, ominous looking at them seeing the top of the form table in the Premier League, but I think when you actually watch them play, it's a, a bit of a different story. I know they've got a lot of injuries as well. So obviously there will be better, potentially easier games in the Premier League, but I think it's an ideal one for for everyone. I think it's, it's a big enough name that you're excited to go to the game anyway, but with the other context, with the kickoff time, being dark under the lights of Goodison Park, mm. it's, it, it feels like it's going to be a, a big occasion. And, you know, as soon as that first decision goes against Everton or, or anything like that, then the, the place is going to really kick off. And yeah, funny sort of way. Can't wait to get in the ground now, even though what's going on this week. All right. And see the £30,000 worth of banners as well. I'm looking forward to that. Matt, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck. I mean, you know, good luck for the, the, the season. Nice one. Pleasure as always. Matt Jones of the Blue Room, the uh, Everton podcast. Daniel, what's your, what's your thoughts on this? It, we touched on briefly the fact that there are other clubs and I think a lot of the reaction to Everton picking up 10 points has been what about Man City and what about mm. Chelsea? Yeah, the kind of what about a Champions League weekend. It was great. Um, we should say the obvious difference between Everton and Manchester City and the two that have been touted. Everton broke the rules and effectively their accounts, their filed accounts, admitted that they broke the rules. Right. What Manchester City are accused of is systematically cheating to avoid breaking the rules, which is a far more complicated, and b there's no, you know, there's no one line, there's no accounts filed that proves that it's a case of building a case against Manchester City, which the Premier League believe they have done, and they believe that their case is strong enough that Manchester City will be punished for that but it will take longer because it's 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 more complicated it's far more complicated and it's i suppose slightly politically more sensitive mm. in that um you know it's not just uh we can see you've broke the rules let's talk about how you've broken let's talk about why you've broken them and then let's work on a, a punishment it's yeah it, it kind of asks questions of the game itself rather than just a club set of accounts um, right. the other thing to say on everton by the way is that um, we talked about them last season. Leeds, Leicester, Burnley, Southampton, it seems, potentially another other couple of clubs trying to get involved as well in suing Everton for loss of earnings because they went down from the Premier League in a season when they believe Everton were breaking the rules and they right. weren't. Um, that potentially would have very grave consequences for Everton given their financial instability at the moment and the kind of fragile takeover as well. Those clubs as well can submit evidence during this appeals process to, to kind of beef up the case against Everton. I imagine if they did, they would make those similar points. Right. So these charges relate to 21-22 when it was Norwich and, and Watford and Burnley who, who went down. But the following season, any benefits from Everton spending would have still been in play, although given the way Everton had been spending, that's a slightly moot point. Any idea on the timescale for 
Man City and indeed Chelsea, who is it slightly analogous that what's been going on with them in terms of payments coming in that that essentially boosted the club's finances, but not in a above the board manner, allegedly. Yeah, we can euphemistically file these on all and as under alleged secret payments in mm. one way or another. Um, yeah, Chelsea is hasn't quite got the same kind of media impact and public impact. I think partly because they haven't won the league every year, partly because these are slightly more historical and partly because the Chelsea situation seems to be more drip-fed rather than this just big announcement of 115 charges. But yeah, I mean, Chelsea are in a similar boat. It was interesting to hear when, when those charges were announced, it was interesting to hear the club release a statement saying, well, that was the previous ownership. So, And I thought... Well, yeah, but that's that's not quite the defence you think it is. That that might be a personal defence of the owners in charge now, but it's not a defence of Chelsea not avoiding punishment. So, mm. yes, it is a it is going to carry on and on and on and on. I've got no idea when they get settled. I hope that the Everton, effectively the civil case from the other clubs, I hope that is settled by the end of the season. Otherwise, things get very very mm. messy indeed. If they win that case <laughs> next season, shall we say? Yeah, I mean, it is it is crazy though how. Even in spite of this, because of their recent good form, like you said, they are one win away from being out of the relegation zone. Yeah, depending on other results. Are you surprised at the almost unanimous sympathy for Everton over this? To what extent were they cheating and to what extent were they just trying to get through a difficult time? I mean, that's really hard to say. I think the... When you get in the, you know, they're saying that they were conceding things and they were presenting uh, money that was coming in as right. kind of just, you know, nothing interest free and, you know, just just because the loans in the books that way. Yeah. The loans that were coming in basically from their owners. Yeah. I think a lot of the sympathy, honestly, is being used as a stick to beat City and Chelsea with. Like there is sympathy for Everton from a, from a lot of fans. But I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that City in particular People find it very hard to understand how Everton, for this, are getting such severe sentence, but City, right. with their 115 charges, have so far had nothing. I think the other thing is it, it feels a little bit... Spending a lot of money, too much money, is what clubs do. Uh, so that one club should get penalised for it feels yeah. almost like harsh for a victimless crime. But when you mention the other teams who have gone down because they did stay within the parameters... And Everton didn't just spend twenty million over; they spent twenty million over the hundred odd million that they were allowed to go over. That's why the Premier League has decided that was un- unfair and unfair competitive advantage. I think the other potential reason for sympathy, and I don't think it's sympathy for Everton as in particular, but I think there is a sense here that the game's quite broken and the game has um, motivated vast spending. It, it is. Um, instigated it and it is yeah it is kind of welcomed it to a point and then it said well no actually that's too much we want mm. all the best players in our league we want all the best managers here we want to have the best league in the world TM but actually that's too much now um, feels a little bit like a, a kind of fairly random line in the sand um, when you look at for example the way the championship is struggling with clubs spending £220 on wages for every £100 they earn um, none of this is sustainable. So if if this is meant to be about sustainability, I think Everton's point is they would be like, fine, but then can we go and do everyone else now? And can we work out why the game is broken rather than just docking a club 10 points? And as ever, we should say, it's always 
the fans that feel like they're suffering the most. Mm. It is always them. And there has the punishment can only ever be at the club because just charging the owners or penalising the owners makes no difference. But it is always the fans that suffer, and the reaction you hear is mm. from fans who are suffering. Yeah, mm. and it's quite an easy. You know, fans can identify with having owners who've come in and ran the club into the ground and that sort of thing. So I can understand the sympathy there. I think as well the sympathy because, like you said, it feels in a way laughable because yes, it did give them. Of course, it gave them a competitive advantage, but because they didn't spend the money especially well, I think it's harder in some ways, to feel like they've cheated, in inverted commas, whereas City, that's a much easier story to get on board with, isn't it? This club mm-hmm. comes in, spends a fortune on amazing players and wins the lot. Yeah, that makes more sense for, for fans if you're talking about cheating, in inverted mm. commas. Well, any idea when the appeal might be heard? No idea. No idea. No and idea. the longer it goes on the messier it gets, basically. Mm. The promoted clubs won't want to hear this, but the best thing that can happen now is that Everton can take 10 points in the next five games mm. as well uh, and move slightly clear and hopefully make... That's what I mean. It, becomes so, it does become less of a story somehow if they do, if they are quite comfortable. I mean, I don't know, but a lot of the precedent, certainly in the EFL, from my, from my understand, the points reductions have been reduced on appeal. Right. So I do wonder if if that might happen again this time. But okay. who knows? But that gets so messy if, if Everton is somehow in the relegation zone and then two weeks before the end of the season it gets from 10 to 5 points and someone else is pushed into the relegation zone. They then appeal and say, well, Everton should get the full 10, I don't want to go down. It gets so, so complicated. I mean, we've seen before, like in that 2006-07 season, it's still, it's kind of mind-blowing that West Ham stayed up thanks to the goals from Carlos Tevez and then it was then ruled that they'd broken third-party ownership rules by having him. And clear, and obviously, Sheffield United are absolutely furious about and that because they, they were the club. Sued. They, they did, so, yeah, and mm. they were the club that got relegated. But football is weird in that you kind of you just move on. Like historical malpractice, football kind of struggles with because it's kind of like, well, what's done is done. There's not a lot we can do now. Mm. Seems to be the vibe. Yeah, should be a cracking game anyway. Sunday, we'll look forward to that. In Thursday's edition of the Tony Football Show. Uh, next up in today's one, though, we're going to have a little look back at what was going on. 12 months ago. Hello, listeners. Danny Kelly here, host of The View from the Lane, your dedicated Spurs podcast from The Athletic. Myself, Charlie Eccleshare, James Moore and Tim Spears are with you twice a week, every week this season, as we bring you all the news and views you can ever possibly want from in and around the club. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of The View From The Lane. We're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot slash totally. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Football Content Awards International Podcast of the Year. Big weekend in the WSL and full-time Europe from The Athletic will be digesting all the top headlines. That's out on Tuesday. Now, today is the 20th of November. One year ago today, what was happening? This. That was Ecuador 2, Qatar nil. Opening game of that World Cup. Qatar's first ever World Cup match after years of preparation. They didn't get a single shot on target. Not the only pre-season promise that failed to materialise, if you will, on and off the uh, field. And 12 months on from the weirdest World Cup in history, we're joined now by Adam Crafton to talk about what that tournament actually has meant. Adam, hello. Hello, you OK? You're very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. All right. Qatar 2022. It was described as the best ever World Cup at the time by a Mr. G. Infantino, who was a gay female migrant worker, also disabled. Um, 12 months on, what do you think history's verdict is shaping up to be? I think it's hard to know, isn't it? Because I think the majority of people kind of watch the World Cup or cover the World Cup and then everyone's kind of forgotten about it, which is how these tournaments tend to work. Um, now, clearly, the, it was interesting because the Qatar Supreme Committee uh for delivery and legacy of the world cup was called that for a reason because they made quite a big deal out of the idea there was going to be if you like this big legacy and i think at this moment in time that whatever that legacy was meant to be i think is quite unclear on all kinds of grounds really you know if you look at even a very simple thing like the 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 women's team of qatar had barely played any official games over the past decade. So there doesn't appear to be a legacy in terms of, for example, um, leveraging the men's tournament in order to grow the women's game in Qatar. You then have Amnesty International released a one-year-on report last week, um, which was pretty critical um, of the extent of the reforms or perhaps more so the implementation of the reforms. And then there was a story we did a few weeks ago, which was talking about how expatriate staff who worked for the Supreme Committee um, have not been paid bonuses. They feel they ought to have been paid for their work on the tournament. Uh, this is despite the fact that Qatari nationals essentially doing the same work have received their money. Now, in some ways, you know, you're, you're talking there about strategists, consultants, spin doctors, who, you know, some people would argue basically sold out to a certain extent in order to do that work. And now all of a sudden they have a problem with Qatar. However, you know, it does relate to, I think, staff from dozens of different countries of all different pay grades. So it could be as easily, you know, a receptionist from Nepal as it could be a spin doctor from the United States. So that that's just kind of a window into how I suppose if when the world turns its eyes away from something, it just becomes a lot harder, I think, for for stuff to get done. You also have a a, a piece out, an interview you did with uh, Lisa Klavnus of the Norwegian FA about some of the promises that were made to make Qatar palatable to the nations going there. And, of course, as you say, the tournament finishes, 
the promises essentially get forgotten. But where are we on any of the emancipation that this was supposed to enable? Unclear. I mean, you know, there are still, you know, workers who are being mistreated in, in Qatar. There's still people who are who paid huge recruitment fees, um, you know, particularly, I think, from African countries in order to get to Qatar on the promise of, you know, bigger salaries when they got there. And that side of it wasn't necessarily so much Qatar's fault. You often had, you know, I remember speaking to kind of Kenyan workers out there who had been basically duped by Kenyan recruitment companies. And then they got to Qatar and discovered something very, very different. I mean, one of these guys still sort of sends me messages once a month saying, you know, can you, how do you get out of this country? Right. And that's kind of a window into the desperation to, to a large extent. It's hard to tell who is really accountable for that, where that accountability falls. FIFA have kind of pledged to look further into what they may be accountable for or responsible for. But again, that's going at snail's pace. It was an interesting conversation with, as you say, Lisa Klavner, president of the Norwegian FA. Uh, and she she's actually going out to Qatar in the final week of this month, along with um, the general secretary of the Danish Federation. They're the only two nations that are going out one year on. And they kind of want to see for themselves, you know, what's changed. They're going to speak, I think, to the International Labour Organization when they're there, potentially some of the human rights groups as well, also to workers on the ground, also to the Qatari government, an attempt to come back with some sort of appraisal of where things are at. And I think that kind of reflects the lack of confidence they have in FIFA to, to do that process. And I think those concerns have only really been amplified by what's happened with the 2030 and 2034 bidding processes, where so much of whatever leverage might FIFA may have been able to hold over whether it is workers' rights, LGBT rights, has essentially been cast aside because the bidding process has essentially been sorted out and inevitable. So, you know, there'll be a vote next year for 2034 in, partic in particular, where there's only one bidder. So any leverage that you may have had has kind of gone out of the window, and particularly even more so because you have the President Gianni Infantino going on Instagram and declaring that the Saudis are the winners. So, so good luck trying to get them to do anything that you may want them to do to kind of burnish your image as FIFA over the next decade. Mm. Adam, you mentioned legacy before. Is one of the biggest legacies of Qatar being awarded the World Cup and then staging it the exponential rise of Saudis spending an interest in football and the fact that they're going to have the World Cup in 2034? Yeah, I mean, I suppose they they offered a, a demonstration of what's possible, right, in terms of when you're looking to diversify your... Because what the two states share in common is this desire to diversify their economy away from oil and gas, because at some point that's going to run out, and therefore it's all about kind of investments in all other sectors so that you have a sustainable, future-proofed economy. Um, so, yes, the Qataris, I suppose, showed that sporting opportunities were for sale and the Saudis have followed that. I think you also have to treat, you know, they are not the same country. Saudi does have this kind of economic and social liberalization program of sorts that is going on. The pace at which that's happening is clearly being contested by uh, human rights groups, you know, particularly in regards to 
uh, you, you've sort of seen feminist campaigners who have basically said this isn't happening fast enough. You also have execution still going on. But at the same time, you know, if you speak to people in Saudi Arabia, particularly kind of young people in their kind of 20s or early 30s, they will say that the society they are living in now is radically different to what they grew up with 10, 15 years ago. And, and they talk about that in a very positive sense. And I think it is positive unless you happen to be critical of the regime, at which point it becomes incredibly authoritarian. It's not it's not as simple as like good v bad, right? This debate. There are gray areas within that. And I, I think where I think Lisa Klavnus in particular is frustrated is that there was probably an opportunity because of that trajectory for FIFA actually with if they did a you know a kind of a more open, if you like, bidding process to really leverage the prestige of a World Cup in order to, to help that society progress further and faster. Mm, absolutely. Adam, well, listen, thank you very much for giving us that little look back and forward on Middle Eastern World Cup politics and look forward to speaking to you soon. Pleasure. See you soon, guys. Adam Crafton. Funny thing is, amongst all of this, it was actually a really good World Cup, wasn't it, 12 months ago? Football-wise, yeah. Yeah. Really, really good. Um, was that because it wasn't at the end of the season? It might have been. You know, certainly we have seen World Cups before where it does feel like players are on their last legs and this World Cup didn't have that feeling. I think also the Argentina story hmm. really elevated it. That was something that everyone, apart from maybe kind of Cristiano Ronaldo's stands, could get behind. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it was. It, the, the quality was really high. I, I guess you might say then that the second half of the domestic seasons maybe paid for that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, so it depends what your, what your priority is. Hmm. Daniel, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, about? yeah, you asked, you kind of opened the conversation with Adam by asking about the legacy. Um, he touched on it in his last answer, but I think the, the ultimate legacy of that tournament is that it legitimised to FIFA that they could they could do what they want. They could ride roughshod over mm. um, over bidding processes, over um, their choice to host tournaments. It, they it enabled them to legitimise their model of of vast investment in parts of the world that then provide votes for the current president in return um but that's not the first time it happened and it, it will always happen but um it certainly legitimized it and yeah we, we're left with because national teams and national publics didn't protest and didn't cause enough of a stink and they, they have no obligation to but they chose not to um that's why we're in saudi 2034 that's how it's happened and yeah. um it will continue to uh, because these are the countries now who can afford to host these tournaments, I think. I mean, I know it's different, obviously, because this is a Euros and it's UEFA, but me personally, I'm so used now to host nations, there being so many controversies and subplots and issues and problems that the fact that this Euros is happening just in Germany, mm. it feels almost quaint. You know, it's like, oh, a, a footballing powerhouse, one nation hosting a football tournament. Because even like the last Euros you know, it was spread over lots of different right. countries. There and was the, a global pandemic, you know. And the previous World Cup was held in a country that had invaded its neighbour. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's how much it's become normalised that it, it isn't the Germany model. It's all of those things, mm. um, which is kind of incredible. Yeah. All right. Daniel, in search of nicer football, should we finish off with a bit of a palate cleanser? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. You've been to two places, uh, both of which you can read about on the eye. 
Uh, one was Exeter City and the other was Sweden. Daniel. Yes, I started, uh, I was in Copenhagen for Copenhagen versus Manchester United on the Wednesday evening and I decided that I'd go to Sweden the next day, uh, go across the bridge and yeah, and do a piece about uh, Swedish fan culture, which is the, uh, I call it the Rebel Alliance of European football. They are staunchly anti-VAR. They, all the clubs are fan-owned, so they get a choice. And although the league can bring in measures, they would be stupid to because the fans realise that they have the power. So uh, all the clubs are, in Sweden are fan-owned? All of them are, like the German oh, okay, 50 plus right, 1 yeah. model, effectively. Yeah. Um, although um, a lot less limited companies, it's a lot more kind of ad hoc. Um, but because of that, the people who vote at membership meetings and AGMs are typically the hardcore and the hardcore don't want VAR and they don't want their ownership to change and they don't want the reduction of standing terraces and they don't want a reduction in ultraculture and pyros. They they are incredibly hardcore about it to the extent that the national team is suffering. Definitely. The quality of the league is suffering, the performance in Europe, and yet they don't care because they're like... they look, the, the guys I said... All three of them said, I cannot believe you have what you have in English culture, in English football that's so special, and you have allowed states to own your clubs. They they it's not that they it's not they're not doing this to be coy or to be kind of controversial. They just cannot fathom why anyone would want that, why they'd want to ruin their matchday experience, why they'd want to ruin what their club stands for. And I hope it continues because it's an absolute breath of fresh air, to be honest. And then yeah, to kind of semi-complete the circle. I went to go into Exeter City uh, last week, who are the highest-ranked fan-owned club in, in England and also the longest period of fan-ownership in the Football League. So they have been owned, they've owned it for 20 years, which is less than AFC Wimbledon, but Wimbledon started in lower non-league. And Exeter are, yeah, are this again. They're like, we're fighting against... Every time a £2 million striker scores against us, who the club can't really afford but bought anyway, we are bitter because... We are sustainable. We have a rainy day fund. We will not spend too much money. We will we will always be here and we know we'll always be here. And we're in a climate where nobody else can really say that confidently. Mm. Did they have uh, a view? But Did the subject of Everton come up at all when you were down there? No, they, they, their view is uh, of this independent regulator is of... Um, Yes, we need redistribution of funds down. Yes, we need the Premier League to help. But ultimately... And, and this, this is a piece I'm going to write this week. I went to Notts County Bradford this weekend and they had 15,000 there, or 13,000 there, sorry, in the, in the fourth tier. And to my mind, that is English football's greatest cultural asset. It's not the Premier League. It's that we can have 15,000 fans at fourth tier games. And Exeter's point is exactly the same. They're like, that's what needs to be protected here. Let's not focus on, oh, can the Premier League clubs be trusted to self-regulate or do they need to be taught how to do it? No, 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 fine, get that sorted. But what we need to protect here is a pyramid that allows hundreds and thousands of people to go every weekend to load their local club uh, from one man and his dog to 15,000 in the fourth tier. And if we don't act on that, we will lose it. We'll risk losing it. Okay. So no caution, but overall, something to give you a bit of optimism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Stood at the end of the, the back of the stand in Exeter and looked out over Exeter, looked out over the stand that they say, Ollie, we sold Ollie Watkins and we pay for that stand. We sold Matt Grimes and we bought that little cabinet there. And, you know, that to me is, yeah, it's lovely. It's a, it is, as you say, a palate cleanser. Matt Grimes not as valuable then as Ollie Watkins. But he only get a <laughs> cabinet. Sold for, well, actually, he, he was at the time. It's a nice but, cabinet. Yeah. 
But then Brentford sold into Aston Villa, and that was their big payout because okay. they had the sell on, and that literally paid for a two point nine million pound stand, which right. covers half the length of the pitch. So it's so hand to mouth, and yet it just fills me with absolute joy. Okay, even if you were watching Not County, yeah, I love Not County. Yeah, do yeah, you? I've okay, got no, cool. Yeah, they've. When they get to within one division of Forest, oh, I'm obviously <laughs> contractually advised to hate them completely. But until then, I like them. Very nice. Excellent. Well, that was lovely. Uh, Daniel, Charlie, anything you want to leave us with? No, nothing, as, nothing as heartwarming as that. No. Right. <laughs> Brazil, Argentina, Tuesday night. That is uh, huge, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, Brazil... Haven't won in three not, under... Not in a great way. Lost to Colombia. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big Argentina one. Argentina got beaten by Marcelo Bielsa's Uruguay. Am I right in thinking as well that well, this for, the kind of crazy format that South America World Cup qualifying has, mm. that won't be, again, talking about how disrupted football is, that won't right. be in place presumably for the next World Cup because there'll be automatic qualifiers and that will kind of play havoc with it. I do oh. admire Commonwealth qualifying for its ability to always produce pretty much the same teams at every World Cup and mm. yet still be really, really exciting. There's a lot to yeah, be said. I yeah, mean, what's England-Malta? There's a lot to be said. No, it's that. true. It does create jeopardy. But yeah, you've got in 2030, what, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay are commemorative match hosts. Oh, yeah. Will they have to qualify? I mean, presumably, they'll, they'll be there, right? So then, yeah, I hope so. So then what does that well, do for the crazy Commonwealth qualifying? The expansion of the whole tournament to 48 teams also changes <laughs> yeah. because it means that even more teams are going to qualify out of that mad group. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, that's happening, I think, about half past midnight on Tuesday UK time, late Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, why not, uh, why not enjoy that? We'll be back on Thursday with another Totally Football show in which, of course, we'll reflect on some of the international action and also throw forward to an absolutely sizzling round 13 of the Premier League season. For now, many, many thanks to Adam for joining us earlier. Also, Matt, Charlie, Daniel, producer Charlie, Rachel, you listener. You don't need me to tell you your name. Uh, but, uh, yeah, do join us on Thursday and we'll speak to you then. Ciao. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.